0: Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Matthew Biberman, and I decided to start this podcast after I was tapped to be the conference's new director in the summer of 2021. This podcast exists as my way both to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the LCLC, an event that will happen with our 2023 conference, while also learning what I need to know to ensure that the conference has continued success into the future. In this episode, I talk with the poet Brenda Hillman, who read at the LCLC just this past February 2022 as the creative keynote for our 49th annual conference. Brenda Hillman teaches at St. Mary's College in California. She's also Poetry Director of Community of Writers, as well as Chancellor Emerita of the Academy of American Poets, and she's authored 11 books of poetry, all from Wesleyan University Press. She's also edited or translated, either alone or as part of a team, over 20 books. Her next collection of poetry, forthcoming from Wesleyan, is entitled In a Few Minutes Before Later. Brenda and I began our conversation with the question I like to use to start all my conversations here on the LCLC podcast. Just what is it you remember about your visit to Louisville?
1: It was a, a completely exhilarating experience. Actually, I loved I loved the town. It was great to see so many poet scholar friends. Um, the the uh, the panels were amazing actually uh the first panel i think i attended was on magical cosmologies and it was just the no the varieties of of intellectual experience that were presented there um I, I loved um i loved many of the presentations they they were uh you know just this combination of Headiness and deep thought and deep feeling. And it had a sort of, you know, this sort of seriousness of, you know, other conferences like that. I don't know, uh, a a sense of of play, a sense that people were trying things out in these conferences. Um, uh, um, Again, this, um, this, this panel on magical cosmologies was really amazing. We um, talked about everything from, you know, Tibetan deities to, um, you know, to astrology and, and, you know, Robin Blazer. And it was exhilarating. And then I loved, um, I loved Lynn Keller's paper. Uh, well, it's partly that I think um, maybe it was a bit of a, uh, function of the time, but, uh, it, it felt as if people were there to share their intellectual work and their, their love of poetry and their sort of, you know, um, this maybe special interests in their, in their lives. Um, and I didn't feel that sort of professional, um, terror that you sometimes feel at the conferences um not that those others aren't aren't amazing um so that yeah i just i just remember those moments of, of of the of feeling that um people were there to to share what they had been loving and you know and and to have fun
0: when i was in line after your reading Uh, And I I bought, and I have it here in front of me, and this book has traveled now, Extra Hidden Life Among the Days, because I took it with me to Italy and back in the interval. Um, And I often, you know, I like how books acquire a certain sort of talismanic quality to them when they uh, accompany us through our lives. And while I was waiting for you to sign it, I was uh in line with my colleague uh christy maxwell who had introduced you and some of her friends uh fellow poets and i was eavesdropping a little bit and they were so excited to hear you read and to be able to spend time with you because you were such a big influence on them as the next generation of uh i termed it sort of experimental female Feminist poets, um, and I was wondering to you if if that's something you're aware of of the impact you've had on uh, poets like that.
1: Uh, well, <laughs> I guess uh, um, how how to how to phrase it. One, um, I guess one is never really cognizant of of how the perception of one's work settles in the individual souls but um but i i have felt um, great let's say i've felt great camaraderie with um, experimental experiments in women's poetry since the 80s um and i guess particularly uh, the sense that that it it is important to break some barriers that seemed to separate um, categories of poetry, that inclusivity of uh, materials like eco-poetics and uh, feminist spirituality and and language play and uh, lyric, I guess, intensity um, seemed a bit like my mission, I guess. And uh, you know, if that's not too heavy a word, and so, as people started to tell me that my work was important, um, it seemed that that it was partly due to the things that I'm interested in combining in my work. And I do love um, to speak to women poets of all, all ages. I guess started starting in the '80s. I think there was just this um, this sense that um, there there was uh, a. Um, you know an outreach necessary that that the women's movement in poetry could be carried over into other other aspects of sort of uh break breakthroughs that were happening in poetry and i i've written about this kind of extensively in several places but um the divisions between lyric and language poetry were really very stark in the in the 80s, and uh, I didn't care very much for that kind of stark division uh, between experimental writing or lyric experiment or abstraction and poetry and the the work that comes straight from the heart. So, mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, I, lo- I, I loved talking to those wo- young women. <laughs> it was yeah. great. They're wonderful poets, too. So.
0: Yeah. And as we're talking about the ways in which your interests in experimental writing and uh, feminist um, ideology, the spillover uh, into a back and forth play between areas like poetry and pop music was something that uh, in our correspondence I had suggested I wanted to to ask you about because we were chatting, and you expressed uh, affection for Joni Mitchell and um, and I was uh, I I told you that your title uh, Extra Hidden Life Among the Days reminded me as a Cure fan and a drums fan of song titles like In Between Days, so what's your thought about what those intersections are, what they mean to you?
1: i um i I was uh, I raised a couple of punk rockers. My um stepson was a punk rocker and uh, started a band um, and um, my daughter as well. And uh, i I love pop music. and um, uh, as much as any living artist, um, I love Joni Mitchell. I think she's a great genius. Um, she's, uh, her her example for me, like many artists who don't stick into safe spaces, um, she, the way she moved from mode to mode throughout her career, and I hope she'll make more music, but um, if she doesn't, we have such a fantastic body of, of of music and art and uh, the way she, the way she just went from that, you know, absolute lyric purity of the folk song and her voice to, you know, to the experiments with jazz. And that she gave up popularity at several times in her career in order to see that her vision was, was always, followed and so she's been a huge um model i guess for me even though my writing is not particularly like her songs but she as a as a singer uh and as a as an artist has been just somebody i i worship as a a goddess um and just the way you know she gets love, she gets um, you know political commentary, she gets spirituality, she gets you know abstract play with with musical tonalities, and she is just a genius. Um, I do love The Cure, <laughs> and I I like I like all that that was happening in the late '80s, early '90s with with word play with um, with a little more, uh, I forget which band was it—the Decembrists or or um, replacements that that were influenced by Ashbury. But um, anyway, I've 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 followed uh, pop music a lot, <laughs> and and punk and punk rock. I can't say I'm up to up to date with my music right now, but mm-hmm. and, and uh, the other one I worship is Bob Dylan. But you know who doesn't. Who doesn't worship Bob
0: Dylan? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I was wondering, I remember when I was young, the first time I uh, studied formally this intersection between conventional poetry and uh, thinking about pop music and lyrics and Uh, which was at University College London in 1986-87. It was a seminar on Bob Dylan. And I was the only American student in the class. And so I had this sort of commanding insight to be able to say, um, D-Train, I mean, it's all great that you're thinking about all the words that start with d but it's a subway line in new york city (laughs) you know there are other like the f train is the one i ride in and out for nyu and they're like oh my god thank you so much (laughs) um and so but in that class they made a big point of uh of getting me to think about the fact that those lyrics are accompanied by the musical melodies and so they they don't necessarily survive without them and whereas maybe conventional poetry right it has to retain its melody purely in the lyrics and you what's so fascinating to me about your poetry is that there are times when i'm reading it when as i said to you in our correspondence i'm not sure it, you can read it out loud um and i wondered if i could get you to talk about uh this sort of collection of ideas that i've just thrown on the table for you
1: um well, I think um, the experience of hearing poetry and reading poetry aloud, and the experience of having a visual interaction with a poem um, can be can be sisters or brothers or uh, or they can be separate units. Um, i'm I'm not freaked out when people tell me that they need to hear my poetry read aloud in order to understand it. Or if they say, "Well, how would this work um, if you tried to read it?" Or um, this looks good on the page, but how how would you express these row of commas? Or um, I think that you know you can have different experiences of of poetry. You know, my poetry is very modernist and postmodernist, but it's rooted in the romantic and uh, the sense that poetry is expressive, and it has, um, you know, a sort of original inner thought to express on the page. And sometimes for me, that is done through uh, abstract punctuation. Um, I started doing it in a book called Cascadia, where I was visiting the the missions in California, and I was trying to uh, kind of enact or represent some of the patterning on the walls um that were done mostly by indigenous hands and um on the on the walls of the missions and so i use punctuation sort of around the poems and when i read those poems aloud i i never i never read the punctuation or um the other day at community of writers i was reading a new poem that i i had a lot of tildes in because my mom's from brazil and I, i i Grew up looking at tildes on top of words, and and um, so I love you. I love using punctuation sort of abstractly because it's beautiful, and I think it's decorative, and it doesn't seem to me um, gimmicky or weird to put it there as a as part of the function of the look on the page. But when I started doing it, I got a lot of can't be said on the air for um doing that and um and so you know i i've just gotten used to seeing what i what i could do with um patterns and patterning if i feel like writing a conventional poem that doesn't have um play with punctuation or sound effects in that way um and that's what the subject calls for when the, that that's how it comes but um um, but yes, uh, that's a very long answer to your your question, which is um that some poems are more easily experienced as as visual art and read aloud to oneself.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you're experiencing it as visual art or what your ambition is for me and other readers when we're experiencing it, is there a temporal quality to it that, you have a sense of of the the spatial experience unfolding and having a duration. And is there some connection between the duration and the diacritical marks you're using, the tilde's, for example?
1: That's a great question. Um, well, I would say uh, two two things about that. One is that. Um, we are t- always timeless and time and in historical time at the same time and so when you're looking at a page that has uh even even a page with two columns which a lot of people are doing now or erasures and so on um, i think you're experiencing a kind of eternity or a kind of um, look where you're where timelessness and time are superimposed on each other you can read the you know the poems that i was uh, referring to with the with the punctuation around the mission poems, you can read them linearly in some way. If you wanted to read the, that punctuation uh, as a, as historical time, or you could just read it, uh, or or you can just ignore it. You could skip it. Um, I, I like to conduct. I sometimes just conduct it with my hand when I'm reading it a little bit. Um, people ask, like, why did you use three semicolons? And um, and I'll say, well, because intuitively for me, three semicolons is different from a period. It's it's three it's three long pauses, and uh, so you know, three semicolons um, uh, um, is is a different kind of conducting of the music in your head. And i I take it from you know, from early modernists. I mean, Dadaist did a lot with punctuation, and so did um, you know, e, e. Cummings was an early influence for me and and, you know, he didn't get a lot of um, crap for doing this stuff. but you know, now, if you're if you're playful, you're not part of the mainstream in some ways. and um i I um reject that those divisions, I think poetry is is big enough to hold all those things.
0: Mm-hmm. And you opened your reading uh with a a well there most of them uh are relatively brief the Emily Dickinson oeuvre and you opened with a, a, a an Emily Dickinson poem from an edition that you edited and it seemed to me to be a nod uh, to Dickinson, perha- perhaps in large measure for being a pioneer into the space that we're talking about.
1: Yes, certainly. I mean, she's a great, she's a great um, model sister, um, you know, spirit spirit guide for me. Absolutely, her courage, her spiritual courage. Um, she had a very different life from what I do. Um, Grandmother of many people and <laughs> mother and stepmother and work full-time and she had a different very different life. And um, so our our her inclusions of things are slightly different, but she is very um interested in the invisible world. And I would say I'm conscious of the invisible world every day. Um, I think that also that line um that that i read that poem um uh yeah might have been might have been tagging on um on the uh this um panel on that bob von hallberg had just led on american poetry and um we had been talking a bit about dickinson there i think um but yeah dickinson is very important um she's been she's been a guide and a model and um, and uh i I could not have had any kind of American courage without her
0: mm-hmm. and the reading for me seemed to reach uh a a kind of peak experience point with your reading of the elegy for c d Wright and there the for me, the focus of your effort as a poet working in this tradition of elegy seemed centered around her accent and the challenges, the sort of impossible challenges of conjuring accent um, of a voice of a dead person.
1: (laughs) That's funny. Well, her voice is in my head a lot. Uh, maybe more than her Arkansas accent it was is her act the accent of her soul, I guess. Um, we were close friends. Um, so let me back up and start by saying, I yeah, I did kind of organize the reading so that it would include a kind of swath of living experiences and then going into the way you do in reading a a poem that has a sort of epic journey where you're going into the underworld um, and then you come out again. Um, for me, CD, CD's work was also extremely, um, it, she influenced me a lot in some way. And I think vice versa in that we goaded each other on a bit to do things that we might not have tried, I, I told her at one point, I thought, oh, you know, writing short poems in a sequence, I think they should all stand on their own. And then, you know, her in Shall Cross, there's this brilliant, you know, group of poems, of very short poems that all stand on their own as like individual poems. And she mentioned to me that she was doing these in part out of our conversation. Um, so, on the elegy, uh, I wrote a book called Death Tractates that um, was uh, published in the late '80s when uh, the death of a of a mentor, female mentor, occurred really suddenly, and I wanted to explore um, sort of childhood notions of the afterlife and um, try to contact her and and speak from um, another sort of voice and. So I was aware of that the elegy is something I've explored a lot in my poetry. I wrote um, a a long um, series of elegiac poems for my dad after he had died, uh, and that's also in in Extra Hidden Life. Um, And the poem for CD kind of came in a first um i i took out i was so missing her and i took out all my books with notes and or my my um uh, little journals and uh with my notes and some pictures of her i had we we took a trip to libya with our with our mates and um and that was a really powerful trip we took together and uh and her her company and just her offhand remarks and um it part of what was um vital to me to work out in the poem is this conversation that cd and i used to have about the afterlife because i have um i don't know i i have a very firm uh idea about the journey of the soul and that it um continues in forms that we don't understand and i think it's um, important to acknowledge that. And I have a trance practice and so on. And she used to tease me a little bit about it. Um, you know, that, that I, that I, you know, I, I believe in various forms of, um, invisible matter and so on. And, um, and she, anyway, um, so that, that conversation is, takes, takes a sort of witty turn in that poem where I'm teasing her about not existing. And she's teasing me about insisting that she exists because I believed in all that stuff (laughs) and I'm handling her voice.
0: Yeah. I can identify a lot with uh, your sentiments and um, uh, um, post- both parents. uh, And with my father, I worked, he lived with me for the last 12 years of his life, and I worked with him. um, He was a specialist in high-end vintage motorcycles, and I sort of apprenticed myself to him. And to the degree that I continue to do that work, I often hear him in my head and I often know that he's sort of in my body in the sense that how I hold things, there's a kind of muscle memory. Um, For example, what I'm thinking about particularly is a, a buddy of mine was working with me and I gave him a little task to do and he came back and did it and he did it upside down. And I didn't think to explain to them, you know, the, about right side up, you know, because I just simply know how to hold it properly because my father's inside me to a certain degree and I'm holding it correctly. And uh, so I wonder if you have any thoughts about the ways in which our connections um, are embodied. Uh
1: you mean, do you mean with, with our, with our, with our dead, dead folks, or?
0: Yeah, yeah, we've been talking to some degree, I switched it up on you, about the ways in which these connections occur through, through language, Um, but then there's this way in which these connections continue on in other ways.
1: Yeah, I, well, I think so, because, um, uh, we're 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 aware. At least I'm aware. With CD, as much as I m- miss her and and other other poet friends who have passed really recently, and I lost two other friends in their in their sixties in the last couple of years, and they were both they were both poets as well. Um, the 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 sense that we are living for them. We're doing we're doing their work in some way or we're continuing our work through through the memory of them, and that it's um way less, it, it, you know, far from, hmm, how to say this, far from being lonely, I, I, I feel as if I have these, or the theosophists used to call it invisible helpers, but I do feel like we have invisible helpers that we can tap into and you know this may be brain matter that's that is memory like mem- remembering her her voice with its accent so extremely clearly but I do feel like they're on on this sort of mystical plane we are acting for them you know mm-hmm. we are acting for our dead and you're mm-hmm. uh, embodying them you know hopefully in good ways and in ways that'll improve reality for others Um, but you know C.D.'s life and work were really cut short and she and I had very a very shared vision even though our poetry is similar in some way and very different in other ways Um, but we're both very rooted in geography and uh, locale and in kind of reaching across boundaries and language experiment and Lyric experiment and so on. so I do I do feel as if I've got her hand in my hand.
0: Mm-hmm. this this trip to Libya and or perhaps it's another trip, but in our chatting while you were in Louisville, I seem to recall that you crossed paths with Tom Slay who uh, is a teacher of mine and who had a very sort of transformative experience. In the in the Mideast, am I right in remembering
1: that I think um I think his trip was at a different time we were um we were invited by um a, a Libyan poet ashur Etwebi, at- um, who uh, um, during Gaddafi's regime um, and we were uh, the only American poets who had been quotes officially invited under Gaddafi to go um, and and uh, we it was a very weird a weird and amazing astonishing actually trip um, we went into the Sahara and went to uh, a small Saharan village and had experiences in these sandstorms and um, and then there was a conference that he sponsored I believe Ashur might have sponsored the, the time that, um, that Tom went as well. I'm not sure. Um, but mm-hmm. we, we, didn't, we, we know each other, but we didn't, we didn't cross paths there, but, um, our trip was just, um, Forrest and, and, uh, CD and Bob and myself. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, for Tom, when we talked about it, uh, he came to a realization that, there was a sort of overlapping of landscapes psychologically and productively for him as a poet in that he is, he grew up in Texas. And uh, so something about the wide open space uh, of the Libyan desert experience as you're talking about it um you know coalesced very productively in very sort of deep psychic ways with him as a texas boy
1: i felt the same as as an arizona arizona woman um i i we were i remember climbing climbing a hill with forest it was during us the sand a sandstorm that was very serious sandstorm we had just been riding camels and we were climbing this hill during a sandstorm and they, they had bodyguards and everything because we were you know supposed to have kind of a careful eye on us all the time but anyway we we climbed this these hills and and the sand was coming right into my face like with this pelting 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 thing and i i i never have been happier i mean it was so like the pelting of the sand um was exhilarating it was like ecstasy and (laughs) i just was having a whirlwind of happiness um the sense that this this matter was so much bigger than myself and the wind was it it really felt like elijah in the bible or something being in a whirlwind (laughs) i just felt like there's i understand how the prophets would get taken up by the voice of god in a whirlwind and and uh you know not to compare myself to elijah but but there was this feeling of like sand in your face is god you know and um uh, anyway like so i completely relate to, to tom's loving at that, that extreme
0: right right yeah he 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 thought about it and was so taken with the connections now that he actually had the opportunity um to to trace the thread that he grew up uh, the the child of uh, a couple that ran a drive-in movie theater so that you know he and his mother uh, reminded him that the westerns were the most popular films they showed so you would have a big screen with the shot of you know this American desert landscape against the reality of the American desert landscape and that 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 it all fed into the sort of mirroring um that is a kind of vertigo that leads to uh the poetic inspiration for him uh for a lot of the those, those poems that have come out of those desert experiences for him um and certainly we're we're, we're back in the terrain of the cd Wright elegy and uh I, I suppose perhaps some of your other poems for you
1: yeah absolutely. and um and and the sense that you know things coming together in these elusive and sort of magical ways across time zones and geographies uh, seem, well, I don't know, miracles. Mm. The, the way poetry is and poetry and the inner inner life and outer experience are just miraculous in that way. Um, I think that's, that's part of what, you know, bringing our imagination to our, to our most intense zones can, can afford. Uh, And
0: in contrast, you, uh, you seem to want to incorporate in our, what in our correspondence I talked about as the jargon of late-stage capitalist high finance of futures and derivatives and all that sort of stuff. Um, Why is that? Am I right in my supposition there? Why is that language uh, populating your poems?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, That kind of vocabulary, definitely Latinate uh, binomial names and biology and um, and and um, abstract syllables um I just feel I don't know for me it's part of the the thing that we talked about with Dickinson I feel as if I I sort of have my roots in these sort of spiritual poet you know like um, Dickinson and the British Romantic tradition, certainly Whitman, Baudelaire. um, But I feel very much like a contemporary woman uh, writing your way into a spiritual um, flexibility requires um, including other kinds of vocabulary and experience. My dad was... um, was a, an economist and he, he and I often had, uh, discussions slash arguments about capitalism. And, and, uh, I, I feel, I feel, I, first of all, I feel interested in the vocabularies and throwing them in like nuggets. It seems like, you know, you, you know, that kind of ice cream called Rocky road. (laughs) Yes, I do you come up, you come across a marshmallow and it doesn't really belong, but it, but it has to be part or the nut, you know? So uh, my, my poetry, if, it, if it's like ice cream, it's like Rocky road. But anyway, um, it's, there's some way in which I think bumpiness and, um, and inclusivity can, can accommodate to these to scientific vocabulary, to kind of technical vocabularies. And then and then also, um, but the but the thing that whole I guess the chocolate ice cream part of it for me is always the the lyric consciousness that can that can hold. These disparate things, even you know, even different kinds of vocabulary. I, I just wrote a, a poem about mycorrhizal um, net net under the ground, and um, which I love. And there's a lot of technical vocabulary, but I think those words are beautiful too. Like I think they're really beautiful. Like hyphal hyphal. It's a you know the hyphae in roots. Um, you know why should why should we keep this sort of pared down barren lyric sound? I mean, I love that sound in some ways that was really common in the seventies and eighties, deep imagey stuff, but I don't, it doesn't speak for my life. You know, I'm, I spend a lot of time reading sciencey stuff because I love that stuff. And, and, um, so I want poetry that'll speak uh, across our disciplines and, um, That's why, so I'm sort of a documentary poet in that way.
0: The poem that uh, was immediately coming to mind for me in our conversation on this topic was Poem for a National Seashore. And you uh, preface it, the epigraph to it is Caliban from from Shakespeare's The Tempest. And my my standard teaching beat is shakespeare i'm a shakespearean by trade so i couldn't let you go without asking you which why the decision to include caliban there his language there
1: caliban is is um for me as important as ariel i mean there's as you you know as a shakespearean that there's a lot of um there's a lot of probably conversation about whether Ariel get or Caliban gets the better poetry <laughs> um, well the answer obviously is Shakespeare gets the better poetry but um but you know Caliban is such a I mean there's been a lot written about you know um the other uh, that Caliban represents um. And um, you know he's he's a great figure. I love I love I love his I love his poetry in the play, and um, uh, I feel I feel very very close to to him and to his to his speech in that in that thing, in those ways. Um, and as the rejected, you know, he also he he also represents not just a rejected element who is included in, in our consciousness by the end, by the, by the poetry, by the greatness of his poetry, but also for me, the idea of rejected matter, you know, and that we, you know, we're walking on the, on the beach. We have to include what we might reject, you know, in order to have this experience. And I think that's where we are as a, as a nation, you know, listening to the committee hearings, uh, this week and, um, and before just realizing, uh, we, we have to include in our, in our concepts of ourselves, what, um, what might be, what might feel like being rejected. Um, I -hmm. have, I have a book that's coming out that's, um, that's, I think, a very. It's sort of speaking to that idea of inclusivity again, um, and the idea of of um, of of uh, the minutes that we might want to reject in our lives, the the trash minutes. You know, like I'm just going to go and waste some time on social media. Well, actually, no. There's no such thing as a trash minute. It's all, it's all part of us.
0: Right, right, and.
1: What do you think about Caliban?
0: Oh, I'm I'm totally on board with your interpretation. I when I teach it, I'm I I focus on Caliban in much the way that that you've outlined it. That the music there that Shakespeare gives to Caliban is the music that speaks to my soul. That modern poetry is in Caliban, um, that it might be the most remarkable, uh, in terms of just the beauty, the beauty, the strange sort of wild beauty of Caliban's language, that this might be Shakespeare's greatest achievement as a writer.
1: It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. He obviously, he obviously speaks for the, you know, the, you know, in some way the rejected unconscious and, and um and that and that by including him we're um you know we're including the very most important part of our dream imagination right bro of course is is a magician so he has to he has to include all elements in order to to work his magic
0: right and i i love the the willingness on your part to stretch the conversation into our reality, the immediacy of the hearings that are going on in Washington uh, this week and the recognition that the mistake here would be to look at Trump and what, what that, what Trump embodies. Um, that to reject that um, is not going to help us move forward, you know, like in some way we have to work through it and working through it is not simply rejecting it.
1: Yeah, don't you wish that Trump would would say even one poetic thing. and <laughs> I mean, there's no there there's no obvious. there's no comparison here being made. but uh, but what i what I mean, I guess, is just the category of of what we reject. Um, maybe, you know, the the um the 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 rejected stepchild um with a great turbulent poetry brain or um or the or the the white supremacy that we don't want to look at in the face because it's too terrifying and we just uh, think it's gonna gonna go away if we if we yeah. this, if we ignore this
0: right or in many ways if we simply pronounce us as cured of it you know um like we've moved beyond it we don't you know, <laughs> um that all of these are strategies of, disavow and they're not going to allow us to work through and integrate um, to use the psychoanalytic language here of moving forward to some sort of better place. Um, And that it's very clear to me that your own efforts as as a poet and as a person is is to to be part of that process that would therapeutically and aesthetically help help us heal collectively.
1: I hope I hope a little bit. There's just there's a lot of work to be done and if you're writing, you know, writing and you're an, you know, o- overly sensitive person, I guess whatever that means, um, you know, going going out with with any kind of strength may just seem in, an insurmountable task. But um I think we can all do our part and not look away, we can certainly make phone calls and um, get out the vote and look it straight in the face what for what it is. Uh, you know, I, I, my, um, m- m- my more active, active activist days are <laughs> may, may not be quite so many as they were, but um, I, I think that we're all in some way responsible for our, for our institutions going forward.
0: Right. Any last thoughts for me, uh, or, uh, things on the edge of our conversation that you'd like to pull in before we say goodbye?
1: Um, well, two things. Yes, I I am excited to have a book coming out that I think does include these things. Um, it's it'll be out in October, um, and I just want to reiterate um, how much I loved being at your conference and thank you so much for the for all the efforts. Um, I um am thinking back on other threads of our conversation. I. I almost met Joni Mitchell once um, because I was supposed to give a reading with her Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it didn't happen because she was sick. But um, that was, that was one little thing that I was thinking of as we were talking. I thought, oh, maybe, maybe we're not supposed to meet Joni Mitchell. Maybe we're supposed to just sort of write into our own imagination of what, you know, of these connections and, and that we're very lucky to be poets in that way. Um, mm-hmm. that, uh, these things carry over to all, all, all our zones and that our, our voices will kind of come together.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the poet, Brenda Hillman. If you did, please hit like and subscribe. As always, I invite you to join us for an upcoming LCLC conference. To learn more, consult the Louisvilleconference.com for details. I'm Matthew Biberman, and thanks again for listening.